Hey guys, thank you so much for tuning into this podcast. You've made the best decision you could possibly make by tuning your ear to the Word of God. I would love to invite you to stay updated with us on Facebook and YouTube. You can find us at Revival House Church. Father, bless this person and let the seed of the Word multiply 30, 60, and 100 times over in Jesus' name. Hallelujah. Well, tonight, I'm going to preach kind of a topical sermon, something that I've thought, and, and I've had many issues. I've had, I, I look around and I see that many people deal with this in their lives, and especially in this time, this is something I hear and I see a push for, and I wanted to address it from what the Bible has to say. But tonight, the sermon is, is it biblical to be unified with all that claim the faith? Is it biblical? The title of tonight's sermon is actually posed in a question. Is it biblical to be unified with all that claim the faith? Is it biblical to be unified with all that claim the faith? I want to tell you why this is heavy on my heart. And maybe to some of you may say, well, John, this doesn't really seem that important. But to me, it's very important because we do really live in a time where there's this big push of, you know what, you believe what you want to believe, I believe what I want to believe. And even in the, Christ, in the Christian faith, in the Christian community, you know, we can be on total, total two opposite sides of the spectrum, but amen, you believe this and I believe that, but we're, we're both right in Jesus, amen, we're both brothers of the same Lord. And I know that it sounds really good, right, that sounds good in theory, and that sounds like something that's sweet and that's nice and that we would all love to be true. But the question is, is that really what the Bible has to say about that subject? Uh, you know, and there's really just this universalism. Well, you know, again, we can stand on two total opposite ends of the spectrum, but yet we're united in Christ. We should just strive to be united. We should strive to just silence all of these differences and be united in Christ. Well, there are some things that we need to get over and be united about, but the Bible actually says specifically there are things you must draw the line in the sand. And so we're going to talk about that. Is it biblical to be united with all that claim the faith? And so... Let's begin with this, and also I wanted to say this, that I really want to give this word to you tonight to help you in your relationships and how to align yourselves with other believers. As you're engaging with other believers and you're meeting, you meet new people, people in your family are saved, friends, family, coworkers, neighbors, people in your sphere of influence, how should you align yourself with different believers? We're going to talk about three different situations or categories tonight. Uh, but to begin, the Bible does teach for us to be united. Look at 2 Corinthians 13, 11. Dear brothers and sisters, he said, I close my letter with these last words. Be joyful. Say, be joyful. You know, the Bible says, this is a totally different sermon, but rejoice in the Lord always. Say, always. Again, I say, rejoice. Always be full of joy and never stop praying. This is the will of God for all who believe in Christ Jesus. Say, always be full of joy. You know, it's God's will for us to be joyful every single day. Let me ask you this question. This actually po this came to me in the spirit as I was up there just a minute ago worshiping the Lord. And the Lord said, a question that needs to be asked to many people is this. 
Who's in control of your life? Is the devil in control of your life? Who's in dominion? Who rules in dominion over you? You'd say, well, it's God. No, really, the actual reality is you're in control of your life. You place your life under God's domain, under God's kingship. But this reality, you're in control of your life. So what does that mean? Be joyful. Say, well, I don't feel joyful. Well, I feel this way. I feel that way. Well, let me tell you something. You don't have to. You can be in control. You can stand in your authority and reject every other spirit that comes to steal your joy. Amen. Can I tell you guys something? You don't have to feel any kind of way. That's not just part of life. Well, I just feel like, you know, I had a hard day today, and this is how I feel. You can stand in your authority and say, no, I reject you, spirit of heaviness. I reject you, spirit of grief. I reject you, spirit of infirmity. I reject, I reject this spirit, and I command joy right now. I command peace right now. Be joyful, period. Grow to maturity and encourage each other. Live in harmony and peace, then the God of love and peace will be with you. So there's the live in harmony and peace. Look at Philippians 2 2. Then truly, make me truly happy by agreeing wholeheartedly with each other. Agreeing wholeheartedly with each other, loving one another, and working together with one mind and purpose. See that? Working together with one mind and purpose. This is just under the point. The Bible teaches us to be unified. Live in harmony. Work together with one mind and purpose. Acts 4.32. All believers were united in heart and in mind, and they felt what they owned was not their own, so they shared everything that they had. They were united in heart and in mind. So the question is this. Does the Bible teach us to be unified? Yes, it absolutely teaches us that we should be unified. In fact, as a Christian, we should take on the responsibility to try to knit ourselves together with other believers and strive for unity at all times. But here's the question. Are we to remain unified without exception? Are we to remain unified with other believers without exception? Are there situations where you cannot remain in unity or fellowship with a person who claims to be a believer? So tonight, I'm going to give you this. I want you to write this down. Three situations where you are, I'm sorry, three situations where you end fellowship with someone claiming the faith. Three situations where you are to end fellowship with someone claiming the faith. Honestly, to, to some, this may be a, a sermon that you say, well, is it really that important? But uh, honestly, this is something that it's not talked about a whole lot. A lot of Christians could probably spend their whole life in church and never hear anything about this. The, the Bible actually says there are situations where you are to end your fellowship with someone that claims to be another Christian. Number one. Let's just go straight to the scripture. Number one, you end fellowship with a person claiming the faith when there is sin that is refused to be repented of. So the number one reason out of the three different situations you would end fellowship with another Christian, number one, when there is sin that is refused to be repented of. Turn your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 5.
I want to read you something that I am thoroughly convinced has just been totally rejected in the modern church. Totally rejected. Not practiced. Thrown out. That we completely skip over and ignore, but yet we can't deny the fact that the Bible says this. Look, we're going to read the whole chapter. It's only 13 verses long. But Paul said, I can hardly believe the report about the sexual immorality going on among you. Something that even the pagans don't do. I am told that a man in your church is living in sin with a stepmother. You are so proud of yourselves, but you should really be mourning in sorrow and in shame. You know, you think about that. Our gauge, you're, you should, you're so proud of yourselves. Think about this. Paul is writing this to the Corinthian church. Why were they so proud of themselves? Well, he talked about in 1 Corinthians chapter 12 that they had all the spiritual gifts. In 1 Corinthians chapter 1, he says, you have all the spiritual gifts. You have eloquent teachers. You have all this wisdom. Man, you got the Stephen Furtick messages. You got the prophets of the Lord. You have all of these gifts that you abound in. But yet he said, you sit here and think that, man, we got it going on. We got the numbers. We got the gifts. We got all this great stuff. But he said, really, you should be ashamed of yourself because of the sin that's going on amongst you. Man, what if that was the standard of a church? Not how many people we can pack in and say, look at me. Look how awesome I am. Which, let me say this, numbers, numbers are great. I'm not saying we shouldn't have large churches, but what I am saying is, Paul said it was an atrocity for somebody to be in fellowship and have this issue going on in their life. Let's continue to read. He says this, you are so proud of yourselves, but you should be mourning and sorrow and shame. You should remove this evil man from your fellowship. Man, if Christians actually acted like that, and nowadays, you know what they would say? You're unloving. You're unkind. Would Jesus do that? It's like, have you... He, Look, I mean, I'm not adding anything to it. You should remove this man from your fellowship. Even though I'm not with you in person, I'm with you in spirit, as though I were there. I have already passed judgment on this man. In the name of the Lord Jesus, you must say you must. When Paul as the apostle is saying, in the name of the Lord Jesus, he's standing in the authority of heaven. I command you as your apostle, I command you as Jesus Christ himself is commanding you, you must call a meeting of the church and I'll be present with you in spirit and so will the power of our Lord Jesus. Did you know God will give you power to remove people? <laughs> then you must throw this man out and hand him over to Satan so that his sinful nature will be destroyed and that he himself will be saved on the day that the Lord returns. I want you to think about that. Throw him out and hand him over to Satan so that he may be saved. How does that make sense? Well, basically what that means is hand him over to Satan, throw him out of the church, and, and this is what should happen, that a person should Feel the contrast between life underneath the blessing of God and now life outside of the blessing of God. Hand him over. Put him outside of the blessing. Put him out from underneath the faucet that's turned on where the blessing of the church, the blessing of abundance, the blessing that comes from being a part of a biblical church. Let me ask you this question. Has anybody been blessed by coming to this church? Let me say, not just blessed with spiritually. I, some of you, you say, well, I've been blessed financially coming to that church. 
man, the, the Lord's given to me. The Lord's blessed me. The Lord's met needs. That if you weren't a part of that fellowship, you wouldn't have that blessing in your life. That's the way the New Testament church should really operate. In fact, in the New Testament church, it says there should be no needy among you. That a true, truly loving one another, I know this is crazy, but is to take away from yourself. If you see a brother or sister that's in need in any area, you take away from yourself and you give to them. I, I, I mean, I know I'm speaking for him, but I can tell you, Brother Tristan, he could probably testify the benefit of being a part of a biblical church during these last few months. That, you know, he took a stand. He ended up losing his job for standing against the vaccines and the mask mandates and stood for righteousness and said, I'm just not going to do this. They ended up firing him. And you know how many times we would take up an offering? I mean, what, what did you get one time? What was the biggest? $5,200 in one Wednesday night service came in for the whites one time from this little church. Man, that, hallelujah, praise God. I can tell you that that's like a person that understands Y'all, this ain't just theoretical. There is a blessing that comes on you from being in the house of God amongst other believers when things are being done right. So this is the understanding. Throw them out. So what? So that they'll, they'll step outside of that faucet and that they may experience hardship, right? Hand them over to the devil. What happens when you're handed over to the devil? He comes to steal, kill, and destroy. So pull this person out, and you know what he's saying is, Paul's saying this person needs to go through hardship. This person needs to go through it. This person needs to let the devil eat his lunch a little bit. This person needs to come out from underneath the blessing so that what? He may be humbled and then actually return and repent to the Lord, and on the day of salvation he'll be saved. Are you all following me? Y'all, I'm telling you, we think that we're helping people sometimes just by telling them what they want to hear and feeding and aiding and, and babying, and that's not actually, that's absolutely not the truth. There comes a point where a person has a decision to make, and, and they're still wanting to play these games and still drink from the, from the river of living water. You can't do both. No, what you need to do is you need to go out and you need to experience a little bit and get to the point where you're really serious about Jesus. Y'all, I can tell you, my, me personally, when I was a kid, I went through this stage when I was 18 where I said, I'm 18, I'm moving out of my house. My mom remembers. I had barely started my senior year. I'm going to move out of my house. I'm a grown man, you know. I'm going to do what I want. And I remember for the longest time, my mommy, she was so good. She loved me. She would call me, text me, just, I miss you, come home. And, you know, and it just really it fueled my rebellion because I always knew there was a backup plan. Right? I always knew there was a plan B. I always knew I'd have that to fall back on. But I remember the day that it was like the faucet just turned off. And I knew my parents loved me, but I remember sitting at my friend's house, who I was living with at that time, and it was like my parents, they just went on about their life. And I went over to their house to, like, get something, and I was hoping to get, see some tears you, you missed me, that you love me, and they were just like, hey, good to see you. Well, see you later. We got to go, you know. The door's locked, so come back another time. And I got this realization that, oh, my gosh, you know, they're not going to chase me. They're not going to do this. They're not playing this game anymore. And I remember I went to my friend's house, and I sat there, and you know what it made me do? I looked at my life, and I said, my life sucks. 
My life's horrible. I'm making horrible decisions. And if I continue to go down the path that I'm going down, I'll be 40 years old with absolutely nothing. And I'll have no success. This is horrible. This is terrible. And I humbled myself and repented and came back to my parents and said, I'll change. I'll, I'll, I'll stop doing all of that stuff, whatever you want me to do. And it actually drove me to repentance. And so he says this, you're boasting about this is terrible. Don't you realize that this sin is like a little yeast that spreads through the whole batch of dough? So Paul said that when sin is left undealt with in the church, it actually spreads through the whole church. Get rid of the old yeast by removing this wicked person from among you. Then you'll be like a fresh batch of dough made without yeast, which is what you really are. Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed for us. So let us celebrate the festival not with the old bread of wickedness and evil, but with the new bread of sincerity and truth. When I wrote to you before, I told you not to associate with people who indulge with sexual sin. But I wasn't talking about unbelievers who indulge in sexual sin or greedy, or cheat people, or worship idols, you would have to leave the world to avoid people like that. I meant that you are not to associate with anyone who claims to be a believer, yet indulges in sexual sin, is greedy, worships idols, is abusive, or drunkard, or cheats people. Don't even eat with such people. You know, so he said, don't misunderstand me. You're not called as a Christian to judge the world. You know, that there's people... Far left people that believe this crazy stuff, and you're not, I'm not even going to eat with them. Man, if I see them, I'm going to spit in their face. No, you're totally missing it. That's not what he's saying. He said, but if a person claims to be a believer, let me tell you something. There's a responsibility that comes with that claim. That's not some cute thing. That's not some light thing. When you claim to be a believer, you sign yourself up for accountability amongst your brothers and your sisters. Well, I just don't like it. I don't want nobody telling me anything. Well, let me tell you, you joined the wrong religion because you signed yourself up for accountability when you got saved. You can't claim to be a believer and continue to do those things. You know what basically Paul was saying is it's better to hurt someone's feelings, right? Well, I'm a homosexual, but I claim to be a believer. I can be a homosexual and a believer at the same time. What does modern Christianity tell you? Oh, it's okay. We love you. We'll love you. We'll still be your friend. And we just kind of don't want to hurt a person's feeling and confront that. But Paul said, essentially, it's better to show your disapproval and make a person uncomfortable so that they realize where they actually stand and that they may actually repent and be saved versus the other option is Jesus said, if the light that you think that you have is actually darkness, how deep that darkness is. If the light that you think that you have is actually darkness, how deep that darkness is. What does that mean? If you have darkness but you think it's light, what does that mean? There's, you never feel a need to repent. If you're going straight to hell but you think you're going to heaven, you're going to die and go straight to hell and never repent and make yourself right with the Lord Jesus Christ because you never saw a need for it. That's what it's talking about. It's better to show your disapproval and hurt someone's feelings and say, hey, bro, hey, sister, hey, friend, I love you, but you cannot do this stuff and be a Christian. And if you want to, I'm not going to put my stamp of approval on it. Okay, so he says this. It isn't my, he says don't even eat with such people. 
It isn't my responsibility to judge outsiders, but it certainly is your responsibility to judge those inside the church who are sinning. Right? What does the world say? Quote, do not judge Jesus. Isn't that what Jesus said? Do not judge. He said, judge not lest you be judged. The standard you use in judging others will be the standard or the measure used when judging you. So, yes, be graceful. Be merciful. If someone, you know, essentially it's this. If someone sins against you, don't have unforgiveness. Forgive them. But yet there still is a standard to be upheld as a Christian. And it's not our job to judge the world, but it is our job to judge those inside the church. God will judge those on the outside. God will judge Joe Biden. God will judge Whoopi Goldberg from The View. That ain't my job to do that. But when you call yourself a Christian, it is our job to hold a standard. And then he says this. God will judge those on the outside, but as the scriptures say, you must remove the evil person from among you. Say, you must. I've been guilty of this. I've let some things go. You know, it's true. And I don't look at people like they're exposable, nothing like that, but I saw something today that said, some people are an investment and some people are a bill, and you need to learn the difference between the two people. Some people are an investment and some people are a bill. What does that mean? Some people are amazing, great. Yeah, I mean, you pour into them, they're an investment that you're making, and some people, all they ever did is just cost you something. You must remove the evil person from among you. People say, well, Lord, you know, if you want them gone, you'll remove them. No, you must. I must remove. We must remove the evil person, the person that refuses. So hold on a second, though. Let's look at this. And I want you to say repent. Repent does not mean I'm sorry, you know, I I shouldn't have done it and I'm sorry. That's great. Repent actually means to change direction. So when it's talking about a person that refuses to repent, they could say, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. Yeah, you know, you're right. I really should stop. But it's ultimately a person that refuses to ever change their actions. And so... Look at this, Matthew 18, 15 through 18. Jesus said, if another believer sins against you, go privately and point out that offense. If the other person listens and confesses it, you have won the person back. But if you're unsuccessful, take one or two others with you and go back again. So that everything you say might be confirmed by two or three witnesses. If the person still refuses to listen, take your case to the church If he or she won't accept the church's decision, treat that person as a pagan or a corrupt tax collector. I tell you the truth, whatever you forbid on earth will be forbidden in heaven. Whatever you permit on earth will be permitted in heaven. Think about that that statement tied with, you must remove the evil person from among you. Whatever you allow, God says, ultimately, I'll allow. If you want to let this stuff go on in the church, I'm not going to stop you, but it's going to spread like yeast and destroy the entire batch. If you allow it, I'll allow it, but if you refuse it and you handle it, I'll back you from heaven, says the Lord. And so, obviously, this person in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, Paul wasn't, Going outside of what Jesus said, this person must have been a person that they went to him and said, you can't, you got to stop doing this, and they would, he wouldn't stop doing it. He wouldn't change his actions. 
And so what did Paul say? You must remove, you must in fellowship with this person. So I want you to write this point down. We don't immediately in fellowship with a brother or sister if they sin. We attempt to help them first. Amen. So listen, the point, number one, was you in fellowship with a person that claims the faith where there is sin that is refused to be repented of. So that doesn't mean that you got a friend, you got a family member, you got a brother or sister in the Lord, and they make a mistake, and the second that they sin, you don't talk to them about it, you don't try to help them, you just totally kick them out of your life and in fellowship with them. That's not what the Bible says to do. No, the Bible says first, first attempt to help them. This is Galatians 6.1. Dear brothers and sisters, if, an, if another believer is overcome by sin, you who are godly should gently and humbly pers- help that person back onto the right path. Then be careful not to fall into the same temptation yourself. If they refuse that help and choose to cling to their sin, you are under biblical command to end fellowship with them. I want to tell you something. You need to remember this. There's a difference between a person who's struggling and a person who's accepting. And I want to even go further to say there really is no struggle with sin. But that could be a doctrinal issue. There could be a good-hearted person that's saying, I may have sinned in my life, and I may have sinned a few times, and I may have a kind of a pattern going of sin. There's a difference, though, between the person that says, I don't want to do it, I know that it's wrong, and I need to stop, and I feel conviction, versus the person that's just totally accepting, saying, you know what, I'm just not interested in what you have to say. I'm just not interested in the gospel. I'm, not just, I'm just not interested in the word. I'm not interested in the kingdom. I choose to hold on to my sin and hold on to this thing. Instead, what does the Bible say? You have to end fellowship with them. Does that mean that you hate them? No. Does that mean that you're mean to them? No. That means that there has to be a line drawn in the sand, though, where you're not knit together in relationship with them any longer. In fact, it says you can't even eat with them. So what does that mean? Oh, so-and-so, you know, the person that gives the East Texas response, are you saved? Do you know Jesus? Oh, yeah, I'm saved. I know Jesus. Everyone's saved in Texas, right? But then whenever you really start having conversations with the Word of God, they sh- they're they very clear, like, I'm not interested in that. I don't want anything to do with it. They call you up and say, hey, you want to meet out at the Red Lobster or whatever? No. You know, I love you, but I can't. I can't do that tonight. Sorry. And ultimately, too, don't beat around the bush. Just be up front. Don't be hateful. Don't be hard. Don't be I'm more holy than thou. It says gently and humbly try to restore them. But if a person's not interested in being restored, there's nothing you can do besides let that person finish out their course. Let that person live how they want to live. Whatever thing they've made their God, maybe it needs to be their God for a little bit. Maybe they, you know, if money's their God and they, and they don't want to turn from greed, they don't want to turn from that, maybe they need to let money be their God for a little bit to see that it doesn't speak, it doesn't help, it doesn't really provide, it doesn't ever meet the need, and then they'll humble themselves and repent and turn back to the Lord. I can tell you in my sinful state, I hate it. I didn't want to hear anything about the gospel, about Jesus, about any of that. And I would reject it. Don't talk to me about that stuff. But whenever I finally humbled myself and came to the end of me, 
I look back, and there are so many people that I reapproached and said, thank you for everything that you did. Thank you for what you said to me. Thank you for saying those hard things, even when they were hard, and I didn't want to hear them. Amen. Okay, so look at this. Number two, so number one, three situations where you end fellowship with someone claiming the faith is number one, you end fellowship with a person claiming the faith when there is sin that is refused to be repented of. Again, that is definitely not practiced in modern Christianity. Number two, which we'll get to because ultimately the question really is this, is well, you think that's sin, but I don't think that that's sin. What you call sin is not what I call sin. We'll get to that in a moment. Number two, you end fellowship with a person claiming the faith when they blatantly reject the word of God. Turn to 2 Thessalonians 3, 6 through 15. Paul said, and now, dear brothers and sisters, we give you this command in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Stay away from all believers. Say believers. Again, this ain't talking about people of the world. This is talking about believers who live idle lives and don't follow the tradition that they receive from us. For you know that you ought to imitate us. We were not idle when we were with you. We never accepted food from anyone without paying for it, and we worked hard day and night so that we would not be a burden to any of you. We certainly have the right to ask you to feed us, but we wanted to give you an example to follow. So Paul was basically saying, as a minister, Jesus ordained the supporting of ministers. But Paul said, not because God said it wasn't my right. I denied my right as an apostle because I wanted to show you Christians how to live, how to, make a, how to work for a living. So he said, even while I was with you, we gave you this command. Those unwilling to work will not get to eat. That's another statement that if you've made in modern Christianity, they'll say, you're unloving, you're unkind. What would Jesus do? What Paul said, if you're unwilling to work, you will not get to eat. I can imagine people in, in the, in, in, back in Paul's day, you know, they just wanted to hang around, not really do much, and they just expected Paul as a Christian, you know, come dinner time, come meal time, come time that you don't got anything to, you know, because the Bible says that a little bit of sleep and a little bit of slumber and poverty will pounce on you like a bandit. Laziness produces poverty, and it's supposed to be that way because God wants, wants you to know laziness doesn't work. You'll never prosper and be lazy at the same time. Laziness is supposed to produce poverty, and I can imagine people trying to take advantage of Paul as a Christian. You're a Christian, right? Well, I've basically sat around and twiddled my thumbs all month long, and now I don't have any money to buy groceries, and so you're supposed to help me. And Paul said, brother, you didn't work. You were unwilling to work, so guess what? You don't get to eat. Maybe you need to starve a little bit so that next time it's time to go to work, you're actually ready to go to work a little bit. You're ready to put your boots on and, and go take care of business, right? So... So he says, stay away from people like that. You know, I want you to think about that. Why would he tell Paul, why would Paul tell them to stay away from a Christian like that? Because ultimately, Paul's cutting through all the 
What's the proper word? All the poop, right? He's cutting right through it, getting straight to the point. Is that the best way to say it? Paul's getting straight to the point. As a person claiming the faith, but yet still wants to conduct their life like this, they're just playing games, and they need to go they need to go out from underneath the spigot for a little while until they get really serious about what the, the word has to say about these things. And that's just ultimately the truth most of the time is that when a person's ready, tell you this, Reinhard Bonnke said, you don't have to make bread relevant to a starving man. When a man gets hungry enough, bread, you don't have to make bread relevant. Guess what? It's relevant because he's starving. In fact, the uh, you've heard the phrase before that when the student is ready, the teacher arises. When you get hungry, when you get thirsty, no one's going to have to drag you to the house of the Lord. No one's going to have to drag you to read your word. No one's going to have to drag you and spur you and, you know, stake behind you and try to force you to follow Jesus. If someone's having to do that, I'm going to tell you right now, you're not hungry, you're not thirsty enough. Because when you get desperate, you're going to do it because you've decided to do it and because you want to do it. And ultimately, I've seen that any time that you're having to drag someone to do something they really don't want to do, guess what? It never works out, ever. I have yet to experience one time where I've tried to force somebody to do something because I know the Bible says it. I know that it's the best thing for them. I know it's God's will and how blessed they would be if they would do it, but you make them do it, and it never works out. You know why? Because they haven't decided to do it. And until they decide to do it, there's nothing that you can do but pray for them, bind that devil, that deceptive spirit that's holding them captive, and call them into salvation by faith, using your faith. But just aiding and abetting and funding people in that state, it just it prolongs the humbling process. And so, so he goes on to say, Verse 11, yet we hear that some of you are living idle lives, refusing to work and meddling in other people's business. We command such people and urge them in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ to settle down and work to earn their own living. As, the rest, as for the rest of you, dear brothers and sisters, never get tired of doing good. Look at verse 14. Take note of those who refuse to obey what we say in this letter. Stay away from them so that they will be ashamed. Wow, that's a controversial statement in the New Testament. Paul said, think about this. He wrote this letter to the church of Thessalonica. He said, read it out loud to everyone and then take note of those that blatantly reject what we say in this letter. What should you do with those that blatantly reject what Paul said? He said, stay away from them. Don't think of them as enemies Oh, and they're so bad and dumb and horrible. They're a horrible Christian. No, don't think of them as enemies, but warn them as you would a brother or a sister. You know, I'm not the judge, but Jesus did say many on that day in Matthew 7 will stand before me and say, Lord, Lord, didn't we prophesy in your name? Didn't we cast out devils? Didn't we do all these works? Essentially, I'm paraphrasing, and he said, depart from me. I never knew you. Only those who do the will of my Father will enter into the kingdom of heaven. When I actually read that, many will stand before me. That Greek word many 
Most theologians will agree when you trace that Greek word, a part of that word, it means majority. Majority of people that stand, and that's not talking about pagans. It says, many who call me Lord, right? These are atheists and Muslims and Buddhists and people of other religion. What Jesus essentially was saying is that a majority of people that actually claim that he is the Lord, that claim Christianity will stand before him and he'll say, depart from me because only those that do the will of my Father will enter into the kingdom of heaven. I mean, if you really want to think about this, how many Christians in Texas do you know that are actually carrying out God's will? How many Christians do you personally know that claim to be Christians that are actually carrying out God's will? They're not living for themselves. They're not living for Money, they're not just out there existing, working whatever job. No, you could say they're carrying out the kingdom on the earth, and I can see it evidently in their life. Honestly, that number is not very, very many people if you looked at the millions of people that claim Christianity. So, so what Paul is essentially saying is it could be somebody's eternity at stake. Well, I want you to feel comfortable. I don't want to hurt your feelings, but ultimately it could be your eternity because the light that you think you have is actually darkness. Amen. Okay, so the second reason that you would end fellowship with someone, number two, you end fellowship with a person claiming the faith when they blatantly reject the word of God. If a person claims to be a Christian and then blatantly rejects the word of God, You just have no business being in fellowship with them, and and that's a loose choice of words. In fact, you're under biblical command to be of no fellowship with them. Number three, let's get to this one. This is the one I really wanted to talk about tonight. This is the last one. Number three, you in fellowship with a person claiming the faith when they choose to believe or teach false doctrine. When they choose, listen to the words. I I, I wrote this very carefully. When they choose to believe or teach false doctrine. Not when someone ignorantly believes or teaches false doctrine. There's some good-hearted people. They've never heard. No one's ever told them. They hold a certain uh, uh, views and ideas about the Bible and about the Word, and it's not because they, they, there's any wrong motive in them. It's because simply they're ignorant of that subject. They've never been taught the Word of God, and if they simply were, they would receive it. That's not what I'm talking about here. A Christian who chooses to believe or teach false doctrines, I want you to think about this. Out of 11 scriptures and passages that I examined in regards to ending fellowship, right, I went through a topical study and said, what does the Bible say about ending fellowship with another believer? I went over 11 different passages and scriptures. Out of those 11, nine of them have to do with doctrine. Nine out of the 11 reasons in the Bible that you end fellowship with another believer has to do with doctrine. So here's my point. This is the most major issue in regards to this subject, and yet we treat it with the least significance. You know, again, we talked about sin. We talked about somebody blatantly rejecting the word of God, but how many times do you see this today? Well, you believe this, and I believe this, but we can still be be united and unified. 
That's not what the Bible teaches. It's truly not what the Bible teaches. And I want to show you this. Write this down. As a Christian, you must openly show disapproval of heretical doctrine. As a Christian, you must openly show disapproval of heretical doctrine. And honestly, I know everybody in this church, you you may think, John, we get this. I don't think anybody in here has an issue with this. But really, in the time that we live in, it needs to be taught on. It needs to be said. Because that's what we build platforms on is just trying to be all things to all people no matter what. You believe what you want. Man, you could come in here as an atheist and not believe in God and still just have a good old time and never repent, never, never feel an urge at all to change anything and still enjoy our services. That's kind of the push of the modern church. Whether you're full of the fire and the Holy Ghost or whether you believe the Holy Ghost died when Jesus went to heaven, you got a place in this church. And that's what we really try to teach and promote. And we teach Christians that that's the way that it should be. And we should put all of our doctrinal issues aside. They're really not important, right? Jesus is is what's important. Can I tell you, without doctrine, you don't even know how to, you don't even know who Jesus is without proper doctrine. People say, well, doctrine doesn't matter. Jesus is the only thing that matters. But yet, if you examine those two people, they believe in a completely different person named Jesus most of the time based off of the doctrine that they hold. And so actually in the Bible, doctrine is the most warned about subject in regards to ending fellowship with another believer. Look at Titus 3, 10 through 11. Paul said to Titus, if people are causing divisions among you, say divisions, give them a first and second warning. After that, have nothing to do with them. For people like that have turned away from the truth and their own sins condemn them. So you say, what does he mean by divisions? We'll look at that same verse in the King James. A man that is a heretic, say heretic, after the first and second Admonition, reject, knowing that he uh, knowing that he that is such is subverted and sinneth, being condemned of himself. So in the NLT it says causing divisions. In the New, in the King James it uses the word heretic. What does it basically mean? A person that is a heretic causes divisions by teaching false doctrine amongst the body of Christ. A person that teaches heretical doctrine will come into a church, and what will it do? It'll start making divisions. It'll start separating people. It'll start putting people in different groups. It'll start a little home group that everybody gets together after a Sunday service to talk about how they hate the pastor and they need to get them out of the church and do something else. That's what heretical doctrine does, right? I mean, really, that's what it does. So what is a heretic? I want to give you the Greek definition here. The definition of a heretic, it means this, fitted or able to take or choose a thing. Fitted or able, say able, to take or choose a thing. Basically, what a heretic means is this, this is a person who isn't ignorant. They have heard the word. They have been exposed to resources. They are capable of teaching sound doctrine, but for whatever reason or motive, they do not. This ain't some person that just got saved and they're up there saying, well, you know, 
There really is no Holy Ghost. Jesus was the Holy Ghost. You know, sometimes you hear people say the craziest stuff, and they're not trying to be heretics. They just genuinely, they just haven't been studied and learned in the Scriptures. Right? So what do you have? You have grace. You have mercy. You invest in a person that's like that. This is not who I'm talking about. This is a person that studied the Word. This is a person that probably went to Bible college, and they've been exposed to resources where there's no reason that they shouldn't be teaching sound doctrine, but for whatever reason or motive, they don't. Which, honestly, we're going to look at this, but Paul said most of the time that a person's teaching heretical doctrine, it's from a love of money. That's what Paul said to Timothy in 1 Timothy and 2 Timothy. We'll look at those passages in a moment. But they have turned away from sound doctrine, and they only serve their own appetite. What does that mean? They want a following. And they know to get a bigger following, you have to tell people what they want to hear. And if you get a bigger following, what comes with a bigger following? Fame, money, more, you know, more provision, more members, more ties in the bucket, more all of these things. And so it's not that they don't know the word. They choose to suppress the word. They choose to dance around the word. They choose to go around those things. Why? To, to feed their own appetite is what is at the heart of the issue. It's not a person that's unlearned. It's for whatever reason or motive, they don't teach sound doctrine. Another definition under heretic is the word schismatic. I think that's right. Go ahead, put it up on the screen. Is that how you pronounce that? Schismatic. Okay, schismatic. Awesome. Basically, schismatic means this, break away or opposite of mainstream orthodoxy. Breakaway or opposite of mainstream orthodoxy. So what is a person that's a heretic? It's somebody that has broken away from what the church traditionally teaches. Yeah, I'm going to just give you, like in 2022, everybody's got a platform. If you want a ministry, all you got to do is turn that little phone on and go on a Facebook Live, and you got your own ministry. Hand out business cards. And let me tell you something. You hear the craziest stuff coming from people. Can I tell you something, that if somebody comes out and says, I got a new revelation from the Lord, and they start teaching something that nobody has ever taught before in the history of the church, that is heretical doctrine. You cannot tell me that after 2,000 years, you know, even the stuff that Kenneth Hagin, you may say, well, what about Kenneth Hagin? What about Oral Roberts? You know, those were actually, we can trace back, those were doctrines that were taught by the early church. They had just been suppressed for a time, right? I'm not talking about doctrines that the devil tried to suppress, like the Protestant Reformation, when they took the word away from people, and then Martin Luther came and, it, you know, got the word out to people. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking like these weird ox spirit. You know, people write books like that. It's the ox spirit, the, you know, the eagle. And, I mean, I'm telling you, it's like these new revelations that aren't clearly taught, have never been taught or held by the church at all. That is heretical doctrine because it's breakaway. It's, it's breaking away from mainstream orthodoxy. Which orthodoxy based, I'm not talking about like the established Roman religious church. I'm talking about the beliefs and teachings of the New Testament church, the early church doctrine. Right? Amen. I always try to do that. I always try to, when it comes to eschatology, that whole series that I taught you guys about eschatology, 
about the end times, I didn't just come up with some new idea. That is, that's the earliest doctrine of the end times that we know that was held by the early church. That's what they preached. That's what they believed. That's what they taught. And so, anyways, a heretic is a follower of false doctrines. So go back to that scripture. If people are causing divisions, if a man is a heretic, if he's teaching something that is breaking away from the, 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 the beliefs of mainstream orthodoxy, if he's able to teach sound doctrine, but for whatever reason he doesn't, for whatever motive or reason he's not doing it, and it's causing divisions amongst Christians, what does the Bible say? Give a first and second warning. After that, have nothing more to do with them. For why? Isn't that harsh? Yes, it may seem harsh in the flesh, but Paul's saying the reality is for people like that have turned away from the truth and their own sins condemn them. So it's better to just cut ties. Do what you're going to do, but you ain't going to do it here, right? So look at 2 John 1, 10 through 11. This is under the point. You end fellowship with a person claiming the faith when they choose to believe or teach false doctrine. 2 John 1, 10 through 11. If anyone comes to your meetings and does not teach the truth about Christ, don't invite that person into your home or give any kind of encouragement. Anyone who encourages such people becomes a partner in their evil work. I want you to notice he says, don't invite that person into your home. What is Paul essentially saying? Don't receive them. What it means to invite someone in your home, think about when Jesus commissioned the disciples. What did he say? Go into a city. Don't take any money with you. Don't take any food, clothes, traveling bags, sandals. No, go into a city and let someone open up their home to you and let them host you. Let God provide for you. Don't reject hospitality when it's offered to you. What Paul is simply saying, if someone comes to your meeting and begins to teach things that are not the truth about Christ, you are to not encourage them or you, and you are to not receive them in any way. Basically, what that means is you don't receive them. You don't sow to them. You don't support them. I want to tell you guys, I don't give sympathy seed to people. <laughs> If I go and I hear a minister preach and they're not preaching sound doctrine, as much as my heart loves that person, I'm not going to sow into that ministry. I'm not going to give. I'm not going to say, well, you know, hallelujah, we're all on the same team. No, I, you can't. Biblically, I can't. Amen. You must not show support for the heretical doctrine. Now look at Romans 16, 17 through 18. And now I make one more appeal. My dear brothers and sisters, watch out for people who cause divisions and upset people's faith. How? By teaching things contrary to what you've been taught. Stay away from them. Such people are not serving Christ our Lord, and they are serving their own personal interests. See? The people that are teaching things contrary to what they had been taught, early church doctrine, stay away from them. They are not serving the Lord. They're serving their own personal interests by smooth talk and glowing words. They deceive innocent people. 1 Timothy 6, 3 through 5. Paul said, some people may contradict our teaching, but these are the wholesome teachings of the Lord Jesus. 
These teachings promote a godly life, and anyone who teaches something different is ignorant and lacks understanding. Such a person has an unhealthy desire to quibble over the meanings of words. This stirs up arguments ending in jealousy, division, slander, and suspicions. These people always cause trouble. Their minds are corrupt, and they have turned their backs on the truth. To them, a show of godliness is just a way to become wealthy. Amen. All right, I'm almost done. Look at Revelation chapter 2. 14 through 16. So again, I want you to understand the significance of this point in the Bible. How as a Christian, we must openly show disapproval for heretical doctrine. Look at Revelation 2, 14 through 16. Jesus says this to the church of Pergamum. He says, I have a few complaints against you. You tolerate some among you whose teaching is like that of Balaam who showed Balak how to trip up the people of Israel. He taught them to sin by eating food offered to idols and by committing sexual sin. In a similar way, you have some of the Nicolaitans among you who follow the same teaching. What did Jesus say? Repent of your sin or I will come to you suddenly and fight against them with the sword of my mouth. Basically, Jesus rebuked them for putting up with false doctrines and not denouncing this false church that had sprung up. Say Nicolaitans. I want you to understand, historically, what were the Nicolaitans? The Nicolaitans were a church that broke away from the early church, mainly in the city of Ephesus and Pergamum. So I want you to get this. You had the church of Ephesus. The church, say the church. This is why it's so different, guys. In, 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 if you notice in Revelation, Jesus wrote to the church of Ephesus, not one of the churches. There wasn't 65 million different churches in one city. There was a church. You know that that's the way that I see it? People think that you're crazy for seeing it this way. But, but ultimately, I believe, when I look around in a little town of Huntington, you know, and there's over 75 to 100 registered churches. I know that God did not plant all of these things. There's no way. There's no record of that in the Bible. I believe that God appoints a church. I believe that God appoints a leader. I believe that God appoints a governor over a city, over a county, over a state, over a nation. There's different people appointed over territories. And that's the way that God sees it, Right? And so that's what I'm really trying to talk about is, is in, in, you even see people that are soul winning, that they have this idea, let's all just go out soul winning, let's get people saved. And the goal is for them to not come to a specific church. If they go to any church, that's good, right? That's the goal. No, that's not necessarily true. Now, there are churches that can be unified, but everything that calls itself a church is not ordained by the Lord. You see that in the Scripture. Again, in the early church, this was the Nicolaitans. They were a group that broke away. So uh, imagine, they were like the first church that separated themselves from the main church. A group of people, for whatever reason, they began to believe heresy. They began to believe unorthodox doctrines. And they went into the same city of Ephesus and said, we already know there's a church here, but we're going to go start our own little group over here and do our own little thing. What did Jesus say? You guys tolerate some of the Nicolaitans among you who follow that same teaching. You repent. So Jesus expected them to denounce and not even tolerate that. 
right? So what, what was it that the Nicolaitans actually taught? Well, they taught Gnosticism, which I'm not going to get into that. They taught impure and immoral doctrines such as the community of wives, something the Nicolaitans started teaching was basically like, hey, y'all, we all got our wives. Let's just pull a, what is his name, David Koresh? Let's all just wife swap. I'll send my wife over there one night. You send your, send your wife over here. They begin to teach stuff like that. They taught that adultery and fornicating is okay. What did Jesus say? Absolutely not. Repent. You should not have anything to do with them. You should not tolerate it. Amen. I'm about to be done here. Here's a question. Why is doctrine so important and why must we draw the line? Why is doctrine so important and why must we draw the line? Why is it the most major subject when the Bible says to stay away from a person that claims to be a believer? One of the main reasons why, nine out of 11 times, it was because of doctrine. Why is that? Because the Bible says that the devil will use doctrine to snatch away Christians in the last days. Snatch away saints in the last days. Look at 1 Timothy 4, 1 through 2. Now the Holy Spirit tells us clearly that in the last times, some will turn away from the true faith. Say true faith. If there is a true faith, what does that mean? There must also be a counterfeit faith. Counterfeit. He says they'll follow deceptive spirits and teaching that comes from demons. You know how the devil's going to snatch people away? It's not through CNN. It's not through MTV. It's through false teaching that comes from the pulpit. That's going to be what turns Christians away and ultimately sends them to hell. And the light that they think they have is actually darkness. That Paul was giving us insight. The devil's strategy in the last days is he's going to get into the pulpits and he's going to, through deceptive speech, uh, spirits and teachings, Give teachings that come from demons. These people are hypocrites and liars, and their consciences are dead. Turn your Bible to 2 Timothy chapter 3. I'm glad I can teach this on a Wednesday night, because honestly, sometimes on Sunday morning, I'm like, I don't know if these people could handle this. I don't know. <laughs> Y'all are great. Thank you. I love you. 2 Timothy chapter 3. We're going to just go and read through this real quick, and I'm going to end here. 2 Timothy 3 says, You should know this, Timothy, that in the last days there will be very difficult times. People will love only themselves and their money. They'll be boastful and proud, scoffing at God, disobedient to their parents, and ungrateful. They'll consider nothing sacred. They'll be unloving and unforgiving. They'll slander others. They'll have no self-control. They'll be cruel and they'll hate what is good. They'll betray their friends, be reckless, be puffed up with pride, and love pleasure rather than God. They'll act religious. Say they'll act religious. Is this talking about the heathen? No, the heathen don't act religious. This is talking about a picture of a group, a, a picture of what a modern church, a last day church, there will be people in what call themselves the church and Christianity that do all of these things, that love themselves and love money but claim Christianity. They're boastful and proud, scoffing at God, 
disobedient to their parents and ungrateful, but yet they'll act religious. They'll claim Christianity. They'll consider nothing sacred, but they'll claim Christianity. They'll be unloving and unforgiving, but they'll claim Christianity. They'll slander others and have no self-control, but they'll claim Christianity. They'll be cruel and hate what is good, but they'll, hate, they'll claim Christianity. They'll betray their friends, be reckless, be puffed up with pride, and they'll love pr- pleasure rather than love God. And they'll act religious, but they will reject the power that could make them godly. What did he say? Stay away from people like that. They're the kind who work their way into people's homes to win the confidence of vulnerable women who are burdened with the guilt of sin and controlled by various desires. Such women are forever following new teachings. Say new teachings. What was the definition of heretical teaching? New teachings. But they are never able to understand the truth. These teachers oppose the truth just as Janes and Jambres oppose Moses. They have deprived minds and a counterfeit faith. But they won't get away with it for long. Someday everyone will recognize what fools they are just as Janes and Jambres. But you, Timothy, certainly know what I teach and how I live and what my purpose in life is. You know my faith, my patience, my love, my endurance, and you know how much persecution and suffering I've endured. You know all about how I was persecuted in Antioch, uh, Iconium, and Lystra. But the Lord rescued me from it all. Yes, everyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution But evil people and imposters will flourish. They will deceive others, and they themselves will be deceived. Say flourish. So again, the Bible is saying in the last days there will be false teachers that fall into all of those categories. Are they going to have the small struggling things? No, they're going to flourish. They're going to seem in the flesh what looks like flourishing. But he says to Timothy, you are to remain faithful to the things that you've been taught. You know they are true, for you know that you can trust those who taught you. You've been taught the Holy Scriptures from childhood, and they have given you the wisdom to receive salvation that comes by trusting in Christ Jesus. All Scripture is inspired by God and is useful to teach us what is true and make us realize what is wrong in our lives. It corrects us when we are wrong and teaches us to do what is right. God uses it to prepare and equip his people to do every good work. Basically, here's the whole point. Paul says in the last days, people will turn away, but spurred Timothy to remain faithful to sound doctrine. So let's answer the question after all of that. Is it biblical to be unified with all who claim the faith? (laughs) Say no. No, it's not. It's not biblical to do that. It's unbiblical. Lord, bless them for being hearers of the word in Jesus' name. If you would like to sow a seed or partner with this work that the Lord is doing, check out the description of this podcast or go to www.rhctx.com forward slash give. You can find all the ways to give on that page. Thank you so much for tuning into this podcast. Until next time, this is John Wallace.